Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. Though the ASPE offices may be closed, the ASPE team has been working hard from their home offices, overcoming technical challenges to bring you this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. This week, we are delighted to bring you a conversation with Renee DeResta, the Technical Research Manager at Stanford Internet Observatory. Talking to ICPIC's Elise Thomas, they discuss misinformation and malign narratives across social networks, focusing on the trends the world is witnessing throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. So the, the coronavirus is interesting because it simultaneously captivated the attention of everyone in the world all at the same time. We also hear from ICPIC's Tom and Jocelyn discussing how cyber criminals are exploiting COVID-19 to carry out cyber attacks on hospitals. At the best of times, hospital cybersecurity is, is not the best. But first, a welcome change from COVID-19 coverage. Aspie's Lisa Sharlin talks to Louise Allen about her latest Aspie report, Australia's implementation of women, peace and security, promoting regional security. Louise, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. You've written a new report for ASPE that came out last month that focused on Australia's implementation uh, on, of the Women, Peace and Security agenda. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the key findings that came out of your research as part of that report? Uh, sure. And, and first of all, I do want to thank uh, ASPE for the opportunity to, uh, to write the report and really to look into Australia's implementation and opportunities for progress as we look at the 20th anniversary of the agenda. So Australia does have a really positive story to tell um, and it, the agenda has always enjoyed uh, bipartisan support within Australia. Um, so I certainly don't want to take away from that. Uh, but as a WPS advocate, there are always ways. There are always ways that Australia can do do better, um, and you know, the international community, multilateral organisations. So what I found is that there definitely is a commitment. There's a commitment to uh, promoting gender equality, uh, and also to the Women, Peace and Security agenda. And where we see that um, the most is in Australia's aid portfolio, where gender equality and women and girls' rights is really a priority of Australia's AIDS aid portfolio. Where I think Australia really has an opportunity to progress on is translating that commitment that we see in the aid portfolio across to its foreign affairs, its national security and regional security thinking, um, its uh, bilateral diplomatic engagements and its responses to crisis situations. So, so really like operationalising the commitments to gender equality because we know actually that you know, this is a, an opportunity for Australia to then be able to strengthen its regional um, stability efforts uh, given the links that we, the well-established links that we know of between gender equality and uh, both national security and regional stability. You've mentioned there um, one of the vehicles that I, I guess the Australian government and a lot of countries have utilised to take forward their work on women, peace and security has been national action plans. And of course, Australia's in the process, or we're waiting for the release of Australia's second national action plan on women, peace and security. Based on your research and, and what you found in the report, what do you think Australia needs to focus on as part of its second national action plan? I think there are three key things that we're, a lot of us are hoping to see uh, in this section, second National Action Plan, which hopefully will be out any day. 
Um, the first is really operation, operationalising all of the commitments. Um, there's a plethora of good policy that's been written by the Australian government, from, from DFAT to the Australian Federal Police to um, uh, other agencies as well. So the, the commitment on paper is great, but we don't then see any guidance on how agencies should be implementing that you know, and how really to be integrating gender analysis into their thinking, whether it be you know, a crisis situation or um, domestic law enforcement operations or international ones. Um, and this was a criticism uh, of the first National Action Plan too, that the, the, the narrative does not meet the, the integration. Um, so hopefully, you know, we really see the operationalisation of the existing commitments. The second, I think, that's really important is an expansion of which agencies are involved in the implementation of women, peace and security. We, it's, it's well established now that women, peace and security isn't just an external facing issue for governments that not only for countries that are not in conflict. So that really means that the Australian second, Australia's NAP, needs to include attorney generals, uh, home affairs needs to have a much bigger role to play in it, and also you know, areas relating to uh, Indigenous justice, Indigenous affairs, and uh, state law enforcement as well. Uh, the third component, I think, is there's, there's a, a gap in how Australia supports women's civil society, working on women, peace and security, both in Australia and in the region. Um, and I really hope to see sort of strengthened support for that, including funded consultative mechanisms to bring about the, the voices of women working on women, peace and security, both in Australia and in the region, to inform Australia's thinking and implementation of the agenda. Thanks for that, Louise. I think there's some really interesting points that you highlighted there. I think furthermore, and I'd welcome your thoughts on this in particular, is I guess the NAP is just, is just one tool that government can use. I guess at the end of the day, we're really, this is something that works across government and should be part of the day-to-day -day business as usual that government is doing as part of policymaking and, and foreign affairs and defence engagement. Yeah, certainly. And, and the, the NAP is not the only place that we should be seeing strong commitments and guidelines on how to integrate gender uh, analysis and, and perspectives. Um, this is something else that we that I found in the research for the report that other national strategies, for instance, on countering violent extremism, are either completely devoid of gender considerations or only include like a light sprinkling. Um, so it, you know, the the national action plan could be more robust, uh, and so certainly all other uh, strategies uh, and thinking on on security should include uh, and mainstream gender considerations as well. No, I think that's a really important point. I note that you've also recently, you've written a report for the UN that you're asked to do looking at the progress that has been made. You mentioned early on that this is the 20th anniversary of the adoption of the first UN Security Council resolution on women, peace and security. Uh, there's a lot of activity this year. I guess it'll take some different forms in terms of advocacy um, as a number of us are now sort of working from home. But nonetheless, uh, the report that you wrote had some interesting findings in assessing some of the progress and also some of the areas for improvement that ha are needed um, after the last 20 years. What are a few of those that you think are worth highlighting for, for governments and the international mm -hmm. community to take on board? So the, I was commissioned uh, by the UN to undertake a UN-wide assessment of how it's implementing its gender commitments. Um, so, you know, the fact that they, they commissioned the evaluation in the first place was a sign that they uh, wanted to know the areas that they needed to work on. 
Uh, but my assessment did find that 50% of the areas of 50% of the commitments are progressing. 40% of their areas are either inconsistent or need progress, uh, and 10% of the areas have gone backwards. So encouragingly, the Secretary-General has already committed to addressing some of those gaps. But whether it be in a multilateral organisation or in the national government, what really matters for the implementation of the agenda is leadership and accountability. So certainly some of the key areas that I recommended that the UN focus on, so accountability for senior leadership, uh, strengthen gender resourcing analysis and expertise, um, strengthen promotion of women's rights and how that links in with conflict prevention efforts, um, and um, more dedicated attention to women's uh, mean, meaningful participation in peace processes and all the peace and security decision-making processes. Those recommendations are relevant uh, to Australia and any other member state that aligns itself with the agenda as well. But certainly we, we still are relying on individual leadership versus it being um, seen as a, as a key component to be including in, in peace and security processes. So we've still got some way to, to go in the years ahead, I think, to, to operationalise, I guess, some of those commitments that have been made at the political level. Yeah, certainly uh, 20, you know, we're about to, the agenda is about to t turn 20, but I, I don't think that we can say job done yet. No, I think that's a very fair assessment. And I guess uh, even more, um, more so now as we consider the implications of uh, COVID-19 right now, there's been a bit of analysis, I think, about some of the gendered implications, particularly when we consider it across health, security, uh, economics. What do you think are some of the things that, that governments, that the private sector, that communities need to be taking on board to make yeah. sure that, that gender is adequately considered as part of this unprecedented crisis? I mean, we, we need to look at the positives in this crisis, right, because it's, it's very easy to feel a sense of overwhelming doom upon us. But from a, from a gender perspective, it has been really interesting to see major outlets, you know, from the Guardian to the New York Times to I think the, the Sydney Morning Herald even did a piece, really starting to consider the gender dimensions in this crisis. I mean, we we've always been saying that every crisis, every conflict has a gender dimension within it, and and this one certainly has it. You know, we, we know that globally women make up almost 70% of the healthcare force. Uh, we know that if schools are closed, they're the ones who are going to likely be the ones staying at home, either looking after the elderly or looking after the children. We also know that there's a, with any um, instability or crisis, the rates of domestic violence always spike. So, you know, people struggling to deal with the new confines and the new realities of social isolation and social distancing and quarantining we know that that's going to lead to a, to a rise in, in domestic violence. So it's, it's really important that gender analysis be conducted in the crises and also that women participate. Um, I mean, there was a photo that went viral a couple of weeks ago of the US administration meeting on, on how the US was going to deal with coronavirus and there was not a single woman in the room. Um, so that's concerning, and you know, we, we should be learning also from the Ebola outbreak in, in Sierra Leone, when women were, natural, were, getting, were getting sicker and there was a higher death rate amongst women, because it's women you know, within the, the gender norms within that community. They're the ones who are looking after the, the sick. They're the ones who are preparing the bodies of deceased family members uh, for burial. We also know in Yemen, um, higher rates of uh, death of women catching cholera. 
because women um, weren't allowed to seek treatment if there was a male relative not present to, you know, to would be treated by a male male doc. If we can take a tiny little positive from this current crisis is that hopefully decision makers are aware that this crisis is going to disproportionately impact on women and it's going to impact and the way that they're impacted on is going to be different and policy responses need to address that. I think that's a really important point and as you highlight in your report there are areas where government has been making progress and I understand at least from talking to some folks in government that in terms of their responses and task forces this is an issue that that is under consideration and they're drawing on that expertise which I think is a positive development um, if you can find one at the moment yeah Yeah. I mean in Australia was um, you sent a a gender advisor to its response um, to the the Fiji cyclone for instance and Australia was the first to send a gender advisor to the allied operation in Iraq so we you know definitely it's it's not all negative uh, that there's always there's always room for improvement and and I think the areas that we've identified would really uh, help drive a more holistic implementation of the agenda and have tangible benefits for Australia's uh, security. No, I think that's that's a really good point and I think it's a good place to kind of leave the conversation there but thanks so much for joining us Louise and thank you for writing the report. No, I think it was a, it was a real it was I was It was great to be able to collaborate with the ASPE team. Misinformation is rife across social media and is a reality of the modern day, now more than ever. Here, ICPIC's Elise Thomas talks with Renee DeResta of the Stanford Internet Observatory on recent trends. So, Renee, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to join us today in what has been a really crazy week for everyone, everywhere, all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's really great to have, to have you join us, particularly because we've seen such an enormous surge in uh, misinformation, disinformation, um, influence operations around the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and you have a background that is really, really relevant to this. Um, so I was wondering if you could just briefly run us through sort of your background looking at um, anti-vaxxer misinformation and, and disinformation and how that relates to the current crisis. Sure. About five years ago, um, I actually got into the space of understanding influence and dynamics online by studying the American uh, anti-vaccine movement. So back in 2015, there was a political campaign to pass a law called SB 277, and that was a law to eliminate uh, vaccine opt-outs for school. It used to be that in California, you could just write a note saying that you weren't going to vaccinate your kids because of your personal beliefs, and that was it. You didn't have to. Uh, And so parents like me were very upset about that policy, and so I got very involved in the campaign for that law, uh, working just as kind of like a, you know, grassroots mom activist actually saying, you know, we need this law to pass. And my role in that process was actually beginning to map the Twitter conversation and the Facebook uh, group network to understand how anti-vaccine content spread online, particularly not only the peer-to-peer spread, meaning where people would, you know, click the share button or use automation tools to amplify their tweets or coordinate the time that they were going to try to get a hashtag trending, uh, but also ways that the platforms themselves were inadvertently amplifying the growth of the movement through things like the recommendation engine which if you showed any interest at all in parenting content or natural parenting content, making your own baby food, cloth diapering, you name it, uh, you would be referred into anti-vaccine groups. The recommendation engine would suggest those groups. So I started doing a lot of uh, looking at how just the sort of structural basis for the information ecosystem was inadvertently privileging uh, conspiratorial and sensationalist content like anti-vaccine narratives. 
funny enough, my career took a weird turn. I, you know, we did in fact get that law passed in California, which I was, uh, you know, very excited about. Uh, and it's, and it's had remarkable impact. I wound up then going and working on <laughs> looking at how terrorists communicated online, uh, during, cause ISIS was actually executing with a lot of the same tactics, funny enough. Uh, and then following that, uh, I did a bunch of the work for the U S Senate intelligence committee on the Russian interference operations. I wrote a paper on the internet research agency in 2018 and then the GRU in 2019. So kind of extensive at, at this point, focus on state actor influence operations uh, and right now we've been doing some work on actually the kind of intersection between the two. Uh, what does state actor conspiracy theories look like as it pertains to, in this case, coronavirus? We're at, um, I was about to say the middle, I think we're at the beginning of um, perhaps the most geopolitically charged global health crisis in potentially in all of history. The, the kind of misinformation that we're seeing related to health is sort of fundamentally different in the way that it's structured from sort of a long-term health misinformation movement like the anti-vaxxers. Um, and I think the metaphor for that um, would be you can think of like the anti-vax movement as being an endemic form of health misinformation in that it is long-standing, it cycles up, it cycles down, but it's sort of based on these long-standing underlying trends, these well-established communities, as opposed to what we're seeing now around the coronavirus crisis, which I think to stretch the metaphor, you could call a pandemic of health misinformation in that it is coming so fast, it is changing every day, by the by the day, by the hour. Got so many different actors um, all trying to execute different um, different narratives, play out sort of different sort of scenarios for, for the ways that they can turn this to their own advantage. Uh, like as a, as a researcher myself, I find it quite difficult even even to just kind of get your head above the noise. There's so much. Um, how do you handle that? There's definitely a low level of vast narratives on social media, conspiracy theories, um, topics focused more on... Uh, I would say uh, kind of a, a low-level chatter because there are always activists, anti-vaccine activists who are keeping that um, the lack of safety of vaccines and things like that in the national conversation here. And I believe also uh, in Australia with AVN. But when you have these momentary flare-ups, and we've actually observed this before with Zika, with Ebola, uh, to, to a much lesser extent with SARS, just because that was a little further back. But you do see the narrative temporarily shift. You see new emerging narratives, in part because all of a sudden a lot of people are paying attention. So with those other outbreaks, the world pays attention for kind of a brief period of time. But since the epidemic isn't directly impacting them, uh, they, their attention tends to drop back off. And so what you see is the vast majority of misleading information and conspiracy theories and uh, just you know inadvertent shares that regular people were doing to try to inform their community in Zika, that was really limited to some U.S. audiences and then Brazil. You don't see it really extend out very much beyond that. So the, the coronavirus is interesting because it simultaneously captivated the attention of everyone in the world all at the same time. So there's a difference of scale, a pretty profound difference of scale. And what that means for platforms, of course, is they have to be able to see everything everywhere in all languages, in groups, on pages, you know, whatever different fronts, so to speak, uh, you know, different features that people could potentially manipulate or inadvertently get something trending on their platforms. And so they have a pretty significant challenge in front of them. For researchers, for us to filter down, you know, we use the same kinds of tools. We've been scoping our research questions, um, you know, clearly trying to say where, you know, what are we most interested in? We've actually been very interested in the, uh, in the overt propaganda communications coming out of China around the origin, the spread and the treatment of the disease. And so 
watching a very controlled state media information ecosystem uh, putting forth information, that's been a little bit different this time around also. We haven't really seen that to the same extent before. Yeah, so one of the interesting things I think about that, because we do have um, a number of different nation-state actors who are pushing different lines about this, um, and that includes China, um, but also includes Russia, Iran, and uh, some political leaders in the United States um, are sort of putting forward conspiracy theories about the the different origins of the coronavirus crisis, whether they say it's a bioweapon created by China targeted at the West or a bioweapon created by the West targeted at China. Um, we're sort of seeing the um, the weaponization of that that origin narrative, um, and I think one of the the interesting things from from my perspective, anyway, watching the the way the Chinese state media has been interacting with kind of the fringy conspiracy Western media in a similar way that we've seen the the Russian state linked outlets like RT and Sputnik coordinating, or maybe coordinating is the wrong word, but singing from the same song sheet as those fringy conspiracy Western media. We've seen them do that in the past, but now we're starting to see that happen with the Chinese state media, um, which is a really interesting development. It's not something that we've seen to the same extent before. Um, I think... One of the unique um, more and more Chinese on Twitter as well, you're actually seeing them communicate in a rather unscripted format. Uh, so we've actually seen some amplification of literally random U.S. persons. There was one person who appeared to be just kind of a an autism activist mom, maybe 200 followers, maybe, retweeted by, uh, by a, a Chinese prominent figure who chose to amplify that content because it was asking if the U.S. government had been lying to them. And so that's the kind of amplification of just, that, that was the first time I've seen something quite like that. <laughs> from the white propaganda, from the, um, you know, from CGTN and some of the overt state-sponsored media properties. One of the sorry, just to sorry, just to break in to just to explain the term um, white propaganda. So like, uh, that means sort of I guess um, officially branded propaganda. So something that you'd see from a, a state outlet, as opposed to black propaganda, which would be, for example, a, a sock puppet Twitter account. Sorry, continue. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. So something that's completely attributable. There, you know, there's no. Uh, there, there's not even, you know, it is quite obviously an official, uh, you know, uh, official output. So what we're seeing there is we're seeing a lot of spin, uh, not quite so much veering into the conspiratorial, but really inserting themselves into the key dialogues around transmission and very much trying to shape retroactively narratives related to how they handled the situation. So you see a lot of emphasis on the number of people they successfully healed. Babies who were born but came through it just fine. You know, babies who were born to uh, to women, to moms who had coronavirus. Um, you see a lot of focus on uh, positivity. So when when stories about patients appear, it's because the patient has recovered. So it's it's a very different alignment. Even when they talk about the whistleblower doctor uh, who passed away, they did have to address that. But again, you see much more of a. Uh, positive spin, kind of memorializing him, talking about what a hero he was, how they deeply mourned him, how they did everything they could to try to rescue him. And there's really no mention of the fact that he was, I believe, arrested and they spent the early days of the outbreak, in fact, uh, trying to silence him. So just a very different, glossy 
kind of way of communicating about it. The fact that they had to create you know, to build extra hospitals was actually a marvel of Chinese engineering. And this is the, the sort of thing that you see. So it's much more consistently positive and really trying to put a uh, a face of competence and uh, the fact that they got through it out to the world. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see now as they sort of start to lift some of the restrictions on Wuhan, um, sort of the coverage that comes out around that, I think will be super interesting to watch. So just to, to pivot a little bit, the deluge of, of information that we've seen coming out about the coronavirus crisis is absolutely overwhelming, not just for us as individuals, but also for the social media platforms. And we've really seen the social media giants like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube absolutely drowning in, in the weight of misinformation, conspiracy theories, active dis- information campaigns, the lot. Listeners of this podcast might remember a few weeks ago, I had a a chat with my colleague, Fergus Ryan, and he was talking about how the the human impact of coronavirus impacted Chinese censorship in that a lot of the, the human moderators, the people who do the censorship, were personally impacted by the coronavirus. They were sent home. Um, And we're actually seeing the same thing happen now to the Western social media platforms. So, for example, Facebook has had to send home thousands of its human moderators. As a consequence, they've had to up the amount of moderation being done by an algorithm. In fact, a few weeks ago, we had not even a few weeks ago, time passes so fast, a few, maybe last week, uh, there was an algorithm which temporarily blocked all coronavirus-related content on Facebook, which obviously was very disturbing for a lot of people. So what, what do you think of how the social media platforms are handling this? Yeah, they have a pretty significant challenge. I mean, there's, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, it's very politicized, right? So knowing what do you do when your blue check authenticated users, so to speak, are the ones who are generators of some of the misinformation that's out there. This is an issue Twitter in particular has because people use, you know, politicians in the U.S. and elsewhere use its platform as a megaphone for themselves quite directly. On Facebook, it's a little more around what is being shared. One of the things that's been an ongoing debate with the platforms over five years now, it it actually, I I had um, meetings about this back in 2015 related to the anti-vaccine movement, uh, was the idea of, at the time, a lot of that content was seen as free expression. So there were real debates about, well, anti-vaccine isn't an immediate incitement to violence. It's not an immediate harm. So how should it be treated? And so that was a, you know, for a long time, the answer was very hands off. As measles outbreaks began to occur with more frequency, particularly in Samoa, where a large number of children died last year, uh, and there was an outbreak in the U.S. in Brooklyn that got quite large, that was where you started to see the idea of downstream harms of misinformation begin to weigh in uh, to the policy calculus. And another thing was the idea of elevating authoritative sources. That idea, the idea that some sources are more reputable than others in the U.S. is heavily, heavily politicized, particularly when it comes to political content. But the difference between political content and health content is that there is, in fact, a right answer when it comes to health content. There is, in fact, verified information coming out of reputable organizations, reputable doctors, and that is what they are trying to elevate. This periodically, you know, you you do wind up in interesting situations during pandemics because that information is changing so quickly. And this is where something that was seen as a potential cure two days ago is uh, now, as we've had in the U.S., um, chloroquine, uh, a few people have decided to go out and self-medicate and have actually become seriously ill as a result of that. So there's a lot of questions around how do you ensure that you're elevating and amplifying, but also contextualizing information uh, so that people are as informed as they can be because they are searching so much 
for information and content. Thanks very much for that insight, Renee. So if people want to follow more of your work, where can they find you? So we are at io.stanford.edu and my personal Twitter handle is noupside. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much um, and best of luck to you. Best of luck to the US. Best of luck to us all. Fingers crossed. Thank you. Hospitals are at risk of being inundated with patients throughout this pandemic. Adding to this stress, malicious cyber criminals are aiming a range of cyber attacks against them. ICPIC's Tom and Jocelyn discuss how hospitals can shore up their defences. So, good morning, Jocelyn. How are you today? Yeah, good, Tom. How are you? Good. So, we've been talking about how the world, in a sense, has been quite literally upended by what is happening with COVID-19. Um, so, most obviously, I'm sitting at home and you're also sitting at home. And what else have you noticed that's changed about the internet? What's changed? Um, oh, look, I'm, I'm a bit more considerate about um, my use of Netflix. It, it may sound like a joke, but if I'm having my Netflix running, I am actually reducing the, the quality of my Netflix in order so my Zoom calls can actually come through with, with a bit more clarity. Yeah, and um, the thing that occurred to me is that there's a whole heap of people who are now working from home and in Europe, the EU actually asked Netflix to reduce the quality so that they were consuming less bandwidth to leave it for other critical applications. So we've actually got governments literally asking people to watch less TV because of this crisis. The other thing that occurred when we were talking was something like toll holdings. Yeah, um I guess the hack earlier this year, January, February, that was that was quite major for them. They had a ransomware attack and that took down, that pretty much crippled their networks for about a month and a half. It received just a little bit of media coverage at the time, quite an inconvenience for their, their customers. They did manage to get, get it back up uh, eventually, but um, I can just imagine today, like we're all at home and it's all well and good when we're not restricted. So the grocery stores, the pharmacies, all those essential services they're still open and that's okay. But it's all well and good for these um, shops to be open. But what if we can't get the stocks into the grocery stores? So I think the toll holdings uh, hack, if that was to happen today, the consequences would be much greater than they were a few months ago. Yeah, I, I remember at the time I got asked by a few journalists about toll holdings, but I imagine if one of our major logistics companies was crippled today, it would actually be front page news and we'd probably have the Prime Minister talking about it. So that seems to me one example of how what we think of as important has, has just changed within the space of a couple of months. We've been talking about hospitals as well, and I know you've got a, a personal connection to a hospital. Do you think they're particularly vulnerable? Absolutely. At the best of times, hospital cybersecurity is, is not the best. You know, 2019 in Australia, the Victorian Regional Hospitals and Healthcare System got hit by randomware attacks. So crippling this, at the time, it was big news because surgeries were delayed. I mean, you can't run a surgery without having uh, access to patient data. And depending on that surgery, that's quite serious. But today with COVID-19, with the healthcare system already busting in its breaches, having an influx of critically ill patients and not having access to either the patient data or access to the systems to be able to help the patients, that would be disastrous. Yeah, and it, it occurred to me that it's not even just hospitals as well. It could be pathology labs. Just imagine if we lost a couple of days of testing data, that, that could be quite critical in terms of knowing what is going on. So it, Absolutely. 
And did you have any thoughts about why hospitals are particularly vulnerable? Hospitals, their primary primary function is, is healthcare. It's not IT systems, security, digital systems. And what happens at hospitals is they've got a whole spate of different vendors that are providing services to them. And they're trying to get that all in one system and interoperable. So the the key thing with hospitals is that they are a large attack surface. They've got multiple critical systems that need to operate together. Their uh, IoT systems are increasingly popular for patient healthcare. They've got a whole bunch of legacy systems that are expensive and hard to replace. And additionally, there's often a lack of adequate IT support in order that can keep up with threat trends, not just within um, healthcare, but, but more broadly that have the possibility of affecting healthcare. So all these things coming together with the fact that IT is not their primary function, that makes hospitals and um, healthcare systems quite an appealing target. More than that, because of the time sensitivity of their work, if they're attacked with ransomware that disables their system, they're more than likely to pay in order to retrieve that patient data. Yeah, so one of the quite shocking and surprising findings or or things I learned when we were writing or researching this was that 70% of cybersecurity incidents in the States last year were ransomware attacks. That, That was just a really surprising finding for me. Online, I've noticed a couple of people talking about how we should consider hospital ransomware attacks to be worth responding with kinetic force. So there's at least some people in the cybersecurity industry who think that uh, literally militaries should be deployed against ransomware gangs, uh, which is a pretty extreme thing to be saying, except that our circumstances have changed so much. One of the things I think governments are good at is not responding when circumstances change. Um, The world's been turned upside down. I think people should think about how long this is going to take and actually respond to those change priorities rather than just presuming that things are going to continue, you know, that, that nothing's changed, no priorities have changed. Priorities have changed and we need to think about what that means for what we do. So we spoke a little bit about what we thought might be useful. Do you want to kick off with perhaps some short-term things we thought might be useful? So in the short term, what we can do is user education. The most popular attack vector has been phishing emails, and we're seeing these bad actors really taking advantage of the fear, panic, and concern of COVID-19, and they're sending out phishing emails to look like the coronavirus map, uh, where they send out an application and an email. Uh, when you open it up, it looks like a map of the world and uh, instances, uh, infection rates of in different countries. What it's doing is actually installing malware at the same time that allows them remote access to the victim's computer. So I think education is a, is a short-term, I won't say solution, but rather something that we can implement in order to reduce the likelihood uh, of becoming a a victim of a cyber attack. A good short-term step that we could take. I know there's companies that run phishing campaigns as a way to educate users. Um, so they, they do test phishing and it seemed like that could be a really practical short-term step that would help improve security posture. We also talked about medium-term initiatives. We thought that perhaps auditing for backups, so making sure that backups work, 
and that providing hospitals in particular, but other critical infrastructure as well, advice on how to back up well and make sure that they exist and that can be restored from, which is key, and also that they're isolated so they don't get ransomware as well. That seemed to be good practical advice for the short and medium term. But I, I suppose the overall message I wanted to try and get across is that the world has changed. It's going to be different for a while. The Prime Minister is talking about at least six months. Six months seems like a time where we could have some short and medium term initiatives that would actually make a difference to to the security of things we really care about right now. I think the clear message we want to get across is that there's short and medium term things we can do in this time that will make a big difference. So a practical phishing campaign to educate users and then assistance with backups and advice on backups, making sure that they work and are effective. Thanks for the chat, Joe. Thanks, Tom. That's all for Policy Guns and Money for this week. Tune in next week for a special edition as we launch the 2020 ASPE Counterterrorism Yearbook. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts on the topics discussed today. You can tweet us at aspe underscore org. Stay safe and we will be back next week.